Amen. You may be seated. So once again, working from your bulletin insert there, uh, you have printed the text for today's message, just a few verses from the very last chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we pray that you will now richly bless our hearing and meditating upon this and and move in our lives through it, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. So, as I said earlier, when God changed my preaching plans yesterday, um, it brought to mind, he was kind enough to bring to mind something, as I was reflecting on what I might say today, he brought to mind something from the, uh, the old archives of Ben Miller's work in, in the scriptures, and um, it relates, interestingly, to our current series on humanness. You know, we've been talking for a number of weeks now about being human to God's glory. And so I went back to this particular text and this particular message. I'm not going to re-preach this sermon that I preached many years ago, but I just would like to take some time for a few minutes now and meditate with you through this text and think about one particular piece of it that uh, actually, I think, has quite a lot to do with our lives. Now, we are in the, we're in the last chapter of John's Gospel. And there is a lot going on in this final chapter, as, as John kind of wraps up some loose ends. This is John's third and his last post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. So three times after he's raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples. This is the longest of the stories. And there's a lot of really potent symbolism in this chapter. Um, you know, obviously, there's a kind of picture here of the disciples' mission to go out and catch a lot of Gentiles. Uh, in the Bible, Israel, they're the sheep. They're the land people. And the Gentiles are out in the sea of the nations. And the, the disciples are going to go out into the sea and catch a lot of fish. And others have suggested, I think quite helpfully, that there's, there's something else, uh, another symbol here. John's Gospel does a lot of work to present Jesus as the new temple, re- replacing that old temple that Herod, King Herod, built. Jesus is the new temple, the new meeting place between God and man. And in the prophecy of Ezekiel, 
uh, in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, there's a prophecy that when God builds his new temple, water is going to trickle out of that temple, and it's going to trickle out and get deeper and deeper and deeper in the world until all of the salt marshes of the world where things die become fresh. And one of the descriptions in that Ezekiel 47 is that these these fresh waters are going to be places where lots of large fish can, can thrive. And so maybe that's part of what is pictured here. Jesus, the new temple, bringing life. And of course, later in the chapter, we didn't read it, but you've got the restoration of Peter. Peter, Simon, do you love me? Three times. And you have the call to feed Christ's sheep. So there's a lot happening in this chapter, but there's this minor detail, very tiny little detail, and it always catches my eye when I read this chapter. And it's, a, it's an odd little thread. You might think I've kind of lost it when I tug on this, but when you tug on this little thread, it's interesting how you find this little thread runs through the entire Bible. And so I think it's worth just noticing the thread. And here it is. Why of all of the things that the resurrected Lord Jesus could have done with his time after his resurrection, he's got maybe 40 days on the earth after he's raised from the dead. Now you think about if you were dead and raised from the dead and you had the power of resurrection life just like emanating from you, what would you spend your time doing? Of all the things that Jesus chooses to do, and of all things the Bible records, I mean, I'm sure he did a bunch of other stuff, but one of the few things the Bible actually records, why is one of those things that we find the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth making breakfast on a beach? That is interesting. Because you could delete verses 9 through 13 of this chapter And with some minor adjustments, all the main ideas in this chapter would still be intact. If you just skipped the whole breakfast story, you know, he could have, they they could have caught a bunch of fish and that could have been the symbol. And that was it. You know, forget the breakfast. You know, he could have just stayed focused on all the stuff that is obviously worthy of the resurrected Lord. But why the little account here of a breakfast on the beach? And I try to imagine this scene. You know, where, where did Jesus get the fish before they brought the fish? I mean, was he fishing that morning? Did he gut the fish? You know, is a charcoal fire? Here's the Lord of heaven and earth with his resurrected hands, and he's got charcoal under his fingernails, and there's the smell of smoke, you know, on a, on a cool morning. And here's the, you know, this God-man raised from the dead, and he's, he's broiling fish and bringing out bread. Do those details matter? Is that just filler? You know, there are places in the Bible where you just say, ah, it's just filler. It's just kind of narrative filler. But if you tug on that thread, as I said, you're going to find it goes a long way back. Because this weird little detail about these very, very physical things that we find in the Bible that really have to do with the body and the kind of these earthy little details, you know, they, all, they go all the way back to the very, very beginning of the Bible, don't they? I mean, what, why is it that God's first command as creator to his human son and daughter, his human creatures, is go have a bunch of babies and rule over birds and beasts? Like, if I was going to, you know, make, if God makes man in his image, my first thing would be, we're going to talk about the first worship service. You know, we're going to sit about what it, we're going to talk about what it means to sit and talk every day with your creator. Actually, the first thing God says is, go have babies and rule over birds and beasts. Very earthy stuff. Why is the fall, what we call the fall, the first human sin, eating a piece of fruit? Why not thinking ugly thoughts about God? Why not, like, worshiping the sun? No, it's eating a piece of fruit. That's awfully earthy. And when we talk about what we call the gospel, the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, 
Why couldn't he have just come as a grown man? Why a baby? Why a boy? Why the whole life process? Why not just come as like, you know, an enlightened teacher who just shows up out of the sky, sort of? Why not have him spend his life, most of his life, out in some wilderness school, up in some kind of ivory tower, you know, where he meditates and prays and his disciples come and he kind of acts like a guru? I mean, why the messy boyhood life in the real world carpenter thing? Why all these messy, earthy, physical details? God's Brothers and sisters, you've got to really just think about this. God's son slept for nine months in the belly of a woman. That's ridiculous. God's son nursed. God's son played in wood shavings, we assume, in Joseph's shop. Best we can tell, he was the carpenter's son. He likely spent years, years, more, most of the years of his life planing and sanding and chiseling and fitting together pieces of wood. And now, post-resurrection, he takes time to make breakfast on a beach. And we are being reminded here, as we are in many places in the Bible, that Jesus fully entered into our human life in the body. And that means that human life in the body is good. It is holy. And what that means is that everything we do in the body really, really matters. God is really interested in what you do with your body. God has participated in the life of human beings in the body, and he cares about it deeply. And what I want to do today is just I want to think with you a little. I just want to think about this odd focus on life in the body in the Bible. And just think about a few things together and just see what God might open our hearts to here. Obviously, the first thing we can reflect on is that our bodies are God's handiwork. And maybe some of you are sitting, I, I look at my body in the mirror and I'm like, ooh, huh. You know, not maybe one of God's masterpieces. But the Bible says God, your body is God's handiwork. Embodiment, being bodied, beloved, that, that is not a prison to escape from. There are, you know, as you know, there are philosophies that teach that, that really, you know, salvation is kind of escaping from this awful body you kind of have to drag around all the time. And there's a lot of Christian teaching that would make you think that what really matters to God above all else is matters of the soul, matters of the mind, matters of the spirit, and those things do matter to God. But the, the body is not a prison. Being embodied is design. God looked at embodied human beings. Now, angels don't have bodies, but God made his children, his human image bearers with bodies. And his description of that was, that's very good. That's very good. Body and spirit. And if you think about why it's good, this handiwork of God, it's good for so many reasons. It's, it's good because it connects us to God himself. It is actually, having a body is part of how we human beings image God. Now, as soon as I say that, I can imagine some of you saying, well, that's impossible because God doesn't have a body. God is pure spirit, and that is true. But the way that our bodies actually connect us to God, and, and they're part of how we image him, is that God, though he is pure spirit, he manifests himself in forming and filling a very physical world, a very physical cosmos, and of course, then he enters into that world and takes flesh. That's how God, who is spirit, invisible, eternal, immortal, God manifests himself in a, creating a physical world, forming it, filling it, and then entering it as a human being. That's how God manifests himself. And we are much, 
we, we're, we're a bit like that. God made us with a spirit. There, there's part of us that is not, the animals don't have this. There's part of us that is, has not just um, kind of sensory consciousness, like instinct about things, but we actually have thoughts and we have a, a, a soul that can reflect and, and a spiritual dimension to us. But God made that spiritual part of us to, to manifest through our bodies in the world. I and mean, if you were a spirit sitting in the pew right now, I wouldn't have any way to connect with you. Uh, as we'll come to in a moment. But we manifest ourselves through our bodies in ruling over the creation, forming it and filling it with our bodies, and in that way, imaging God. So our bodies connect us to God, and I've already kind of hinted, they also connect us to each other. We are made from one human set of parents. Like, we are physically joined, actually, to all human beings everywhere, just even at the level of, you know, uh, the fact we all came from one Adam and Eve. One union, and and we, we, we come from, we actually come from the bodies of our parents. I mean, you you were attached to your mom by a cord <laughs> at one time. It doesn't get much more you know bonded than that. That's our bodies being a way of bonding. We touch one another. We we physically sense one another. You know what's happening right now would be impossible without bodies. Your your body is what enables this whole thing to happen in this room right now as we are in each other's presence. We unite physically in marriage, and all of that is bonding that happens through our bodies. And, of course, our bodies don't just connect us to God and each other. They connect us to, the, to other creation. You know, it's through our bodies we form the world and fill the world and enjoy creation. And Jesus shows all of that in this simple breakfast, doesn't he? In this simple breakfast, he is imaging God as provider, He's being a host of this breakfast, and he's imaging God in this physical thing he's doing. He's obviously bonding with his disciples here over this meal. This is really a very kind thing for him to do. And he's taking loving dominion over the fish of the sea, you know, as Adam was created to do. And so what this tells us, that, that our bodies are, are God's handiwork. They are designed by God. They are given to us by God, our creator. And what that means is that the way we use our bodies is not neutral. It's not some afterthought to what Christianity is really all about. Christianity is really all about this spiritual connection to God who is spirit, and the body is kind of an afterthought. That's not true at all. God made our bodies, gave them to us, and he cares deeply about what we do with them. They're not neutral at all, and that brings us to a second thing then that we can ponder. Our bodies are God's handiwork, but of course our bodies, secondly, they do sin and suffer, don't they? Think about your body in relation to sin and suffering. Why is Jesus on this beach, in the body? Think about this. I bet even our little people would know this if they thought about it. Why is Jesus here in the body, on this beach in Galilee? He is there in the body because you and I sinned and we suffer and we die in the body. Right? Jesus is here in the body, in the world, in a human body, because sin and death are a body problem. He needs a body to deal with that body problem. You never sin without using your body. When you sin in your thoughts, your mind, your brain is working. When you sin with your tongue, it's your body. When you sin with your hands, your feet, your sexual organs, whatever it might be, you know, whatever is going on, even your emotions are physical in a very deep sense. And so we always are sinning with our body. The body is always involved in sin. Scripture says we are not to present our members of our bodies anymore as instruments of sin, because that's what we do, right? And so Jesus had to bear our sins in the body. He had to bear God's death curse 
on our bodies in his body. He had to destroy death in the body. He had to be a savior in the body because we are sinners in the body. That's why he's here in the body in this story. Our bodies sin. And, of course, our bodily sins create a lot of suffering, don't they? For our bodies, actually. We, our, our bodies suffer a lot. As you survey the, the human effects, sorry, the, the, the effects of human sin in the world, you know, you might think about all the ways since Adam and Eve sin has affected the world. What you will notice looking at that scene is there are just so many miseries of the body, including the brain. Just so many miseries. So much suffering for the, for the, for the bodies of human beings. And... All suffering of the body, up to and including death, which is kind of the ultimate damage sin has done to the body, all of that suffering, including death, is a reminder that we human beings are under God's judgment. I want to be super careful pastorally here. I am not saying that every particular suffering that you endure is a direct consequence of some particular personal sin you've committed. That, that's, that's just silly. But every Every experience of suffering, whether or not it's directly tied to some specific thing that I've done or not, it is all, all that suffering and misery that we experience in our bodies, the headaches, the toothaches, the, you know, the mental health issues, the, uh, you know, pains of various kinds and, and, and sufferings of various kinds, all of that is, is a reminder to us we are really under judgment. That is the hand of God's judgment upon us because of our sin. And so when we are suffering as God's children, it should be a, a gentle prompt although sometimes you know it's not very gentle, that we need to keep walking in repentance from our sin. When you suffer, God is, God is, God is reminding you. Remember sin. Remember, for, for you who are in Christ, this isn't punishment anymore, but it is it's often disciplinary. It's, it's bringing us back to the fact that we are, we are sinners. We are miserable offenders. We need to turn from our sin. We need to repent. We need to trust, trust in Jesus as we suffer. But, you know, a lot of us as God's children know what it's like when you're experiencing temp- suffering in the body. There's a temptation to despair. There's a temptation to think that God is against you. There's a temptation to be just so worn down by the suffering to feel as if it really is just a judgment from the Lord. And it's not the gentle hand of a father you feel, but you, you almost are tempted to, to feel that, that, that there's, there's kind of hopelessness in it. And, and, and that itself is a kind of bodily suffering. And the fact that we suffer in the body as sinners, that's why Jesus, in his love and his grace as the Lord, he calls us to serve people and to minister to their bodies as well as their souls, whether they are fellow Christians or not. Our bodies sin and suffer, and that's why Jesus, when he's walking through the world proclaiming the kingdom, he's not just preaching and teaching, is he? He's healing, he's feeding, he's he's touching people. And that's what God's people are to do in the world as they're surrounded by sufferings of the body. The Bible says, for example, take our persecuted brothers and sisters, those people being tortured right now as we sit here having worship, those people behind who, are, who, who, who will languish for the rest of their lives possibly in prison cells. The, the scripture says, remember those who are suffering as those who are also in the body. You feel in your body something of what they are feeling in the body. That's, remember their bodily sufferings. That's, that's part of how Christians think. The body matters. And, of course, John, in one of his letters, tells us it is extremely wrong if somebody comes to you with a bodily need and you say, I'll pray for you. You know, think about the good Samaritan. If he had stopped by that guy bleeding out along the road and been like, you know, Samaritan that I am, though you are a Jew, I will pray for you. I'll go to the temple and I will offer sacrifices and pray for you. I mean, what possible good does that do, John says? It's give what is needful for the body. Love people's bodies. Often that's the doorway to open up 
you know, those who even don't know Jesus, open, the, open up their hearts to the gospel. Those who, who do know the Lord, it's, that's how Jesus wants his body to minister to his body. It's interesting to me here that Jesus, his disciples went out all night fishing. Now, admittedly, this was a hobby sort of thing. They, they probably weren't necessarily, do, I don't know, were they doing this for money? I don't know. It might have just been for fun. They missed fishing. I don't know. But they've been out all night. It's a long night. What do you think about when you come in after an all-nighter? And, you know, it's it a bad night, not a fish. You know, you're, you're starving, and Jesus doesn't launch into, now, you know, Simon, do you love me? He, he feeds them. He takes care of their bodies. He gives them some breakfast before engaging them about this big future mission they're about to, to go on. So our bodies sin and suffer. But then this text also reminds us our bodies are saved and sanctified. Our bodies are saved and sanctified. God took a human soul and he took a human body so that he could redeem. You guys know that word means buy back from slavery both your soul and your body. To, to, to release your soul from slavery the spiritual part of you, but also to release your body from slavery and to restore both of them, to restore your soul and also your body. Not just to transform you by renewing your mind, though that's really important, but to make your body into a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice to God. That's, that's, that's the work of Jesus. He saves your body. What this means is, beloved... Sin doesn't doesn't own your body anymore. Death doesn't own your body anymore. Sin and death do not rule your body anymore. Jesus owns your body. Jesus rules your body. He loves your body. In fact, the Bible says, and this is just to me just starts to get into mysteries I can hardly comprehend. The Bible says that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes and with God the Father, he makes your body and all of your bodily activities, his home. That's the language he uses in John. I will, we'll make our home with you. And he makes your body his temple where he, his holy presence dwells. Maybe we can come at this from another angle. The Bible says that you, and by you, I mean all of you, your soul, yes, the spiritual part of you, but also your body, you have been, this is the biblical language, you have been raised with Christ. You've been resurrected with Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you something. Right now, is your soul and our, are your soul and body both raised with Jesus? The Bible says they are. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, that's impossible because my body is probably going, unless Jesus comes back first, my body's going to die and it's going to go into the ground, and then there will be the resurrection of the body at some point when Jesus you know, returns. But that, that is true, but it is also true that your soul and body have already been raised with Christ. That's what the Bible says. Now, take your body, for example. Your body, and this is true of your soul, too, your body is not yet perfect in righteousness, perfect in power, perfect in glory, like it will be when Jesus raises at the last day. I'm kind of excited about what my body's going to be like when Jesus raises me at the last day. I, I've never experienced perfect righteousness, power, and glory, and I might be, like, awesome, you know, when God does that to me, glorifies me, and, I, and my soul is completely free from sin, my body from all the effects of sin. I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to that. And we're not there yet. That is, a, that is a thing that is still to come. And Jesus in this text is an example of that. He is raised perfectly righteous, full of power and glory. And he's, he, this is the resurrected Jesus. Like, we'll be resurrected one day. But the Bible also says, with that glorious hope to come, 
For those who are asleep in Christ and those who are even now living in Christ, that great resurrection is yet to come. But the Bible also says that the spirit who raised Jesus lives in you. And that spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Do you realize that is happening right now? The, re- the spirit of this resurrected Lord is in your body. And God has raised your whole being, body and soul, with Christ, which means Jesus said, whoever believes in me can never die. Even when you die, you're not really going to die because you already have life. He who has the Son has life. He who has the Son is going to live forever. That's true. That, is not, that will not be more true of you on the resurrection day than it already is. The Spirit of God is in you, quickening your soul and body. That's what the Bible says about us. Do you know that's what your baptism means? I am going to preach on baptism today. Baptism means your body has been marked not just for the resurrection to come. That is part of what baptism means. God has marked your body with water for the resurrection to come. But it also means your body has been marked as a theater of God's glory even now. Because your body with all of its members, these, look at your body, these are what the Bible calls instruments of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin shall not rule in your mortal body. Present your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin no longer reigns over my hands, my eyes, my ears, my bodily passions. Sin is no longer my master. My body is a theater in which God is going to show what righteousness looks like in action long before he raises me at the last day. And not only that, he's going to make my body a theater of glory even in all of its weaknesses. And, you know, every one of us could sit here and talk for hours about bodily weaknesses, but the Bible says that my body, your body, these are, what, what's the language Paul uses? They are jars of clay, fragile, breakable little things in the very weakness of which God's grace and power are perfected. When God works through your bodily suffering, the breaking of your jar of clay, he, sh- he says to Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And you watch this in the lives of saints. Your body even now, raised with Christ, is a theater of God's glory. And look at how ordinary and earthy and physical this is as Jesus walks about in this resurrection life. The life of the resurrected Lord involves many things, including right now ruling at the Father's right hand. It also involves breakfast on a beach, something that ordinary. And the Bible is telling us here, I think, that the very ordinary, everyday things of life in the body, they're now holy. Even eating and drinking is a holy activity because we are always doing what we do in the body now, the most basic, ordinary, everyday things like making breakfast. We are doing these with the Lord we are doing these things for the Lord. So what does, what does sanctify, what does holy body life, what's it look like? A couple of thoughts about this. Our bodies are saved and sanctified. This is what it looks like. It looks like celebration with consecration. Celebration with consecration. What do I mean by that? Our bodies should be celebrating. Because <laughs> God made so much of the world for our bodies. You ever thought about this? How much of God's creation is for your body? It's to see, it's to taste, it's to smell, it's to touch, it's to hear, and it is to be enjoyed. 
The Bible says every gift of God is to be received with overflowing thanksgiving and joy. And my, my own view is that we don't celebrate enough. <laughs> that a lot of times we, we, are, we are kind of dragging in holiness because we don't celebrate enough. We don't grab hold of God's gifts in this world to our bodies and just enjoy them and give thanks for them and celebrate them. I mean, if Jesus gives you smoked fish, enjoy it. Celebrate it with consecration because we're thankful, because this is a gift from my Father. Obviously, then, I will not dishonor the giver as I enjoy this gift. I will not let sin reign in my appetites as I celebrate. I will not let sin reign in my passions as I rejoice. I will not, like Esau, sell my birthright for a bowl of soup. I love the world. I enjoy the world with my body, but I don't sin against God in order to enjoy it. I don't turn the gifts against him. I don't use the gifts he's given to damage my body or to defile God's temple. I've told you the story. I once held a young girl's hands in my hands as she was dealing with some self-harm issues, and I said to her, whose hands are these? Whose hands are these? These are Jesus' hands. These are members of his body. Be careful what you do with them. Celebrate, enjoy with consecration. Because you're enjoying these things in God's temple. It also, sanctified body life, not just celebration with consecration, but contemplation and, and cultivation. Contemplation and cultivation. Why do I use those big words? Because they kind of represent the two poles of human body life, don't they? There's contemplation. Our bodies are made to worship. Our bodies were made to give attention to the word. You guys are doing well with that right now. To really give attention. Do you realize you can't give attention? Part of why God gave you a body is to give attention. Why do you have senses? To pay attention. And we pay attention to the word of God. And we pay attention to the world of God. As God through creation is just manifesting his glory. And there's a contemplative part of body life where I'm paying attention with all of me, soul and body, to the word of God and the world that God has made. And I am beholding his glory and I'm just thinking about things. And I am attending to them until, as I've often used this, like the tuning fork of my heart begins to resonate with the music of God's glory all around me. That is, that's part of body life, just contemplation. But then there's also not just worship with the body, but there's cultivation, there's work. I don't mean work like some drudgery, some dr- you know, task full of drudgery. I just mean all the things that we do actively in the world with our bodies. We cultivate the world, and it's just ordinary things. You know, in our house, Sarah cooks, because, not because it's, we think it's woman's work to cook, but because nobody wants to eat my food, understandably. And so Sarah cooks, and she's brilliant. And I often think about Sarah because Sarah, you know, she, she works all the time. She works all the time, and she has so much to do. And one of the things that she also does on top of everything else that she has to do is she makes sure that our family eat three square meals a day. And I often think about that work. And there are a few things more mundane than getting food ready for a family. There's no, no, no thanks. The best you can hope for is someone will whine about what you're making. You don't get help. You don't get thanks. It's drudgery. It's like a boring you know, talk about a task like, what is glamorous about this? And I often ask myself, if the resurrected Jesus lived at my house, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would sit on the couch and he'd be an oracle of truth and wisdom. He might. He'd also make breakfast. 
Because all those ordinary things we do with the body now, they're Jesus things. He, like my wife, in that very simple, very simple, everyday, ordinary, thankless task, Jesus would display God's creativity and his wisdom and his goodness and his care and his investment. He would do the human things. He would do the ordinary things because they are all holy now, both contemplation, the heights of contemplation, and the lowly realities, the menial realities of cultivation. Sanctified body life also looks like convocation. Convocation is calling bodies together. This is a convocation. We were called to worship together today. And Jesus says, come, come have breakfast. One of the things that sanctified body life looks like is bodies calling other bodies to get together and enjoy and celebrate and cultivate and contemplate in consecration together. Come have some breakfast. Can I just say one quick thing to you parents here? In light of the fact that our bodies are saved and sanctified, I'm going to keep this brief, but this really matters. We've been talking about it some in Bible school. A lot of your children's life on screens, please listen to me. A lot of your children's life on screens is intentionally separating them from their bodies and separating them from the world that God made for their bodies. And this is one of those areas in which I believe God's people need to stop only asking what is right and begin to ask what is good. It is a massive failing of Christian ethics when the only thing you ever ask is, does the Bible say that's sin? No, it doesn't. And the most interesting ethical questions are not matters of sin and righteousness. They're matters of good and not good, of flourishing and deterioration. And we are raising a generation that is very much losing their bodies and losing the world that God made for the body, and that is not a good thing, even though I can't give you a verse of the Bible that says it's sin. Are you with me on that? And I didn't give you a rule, so please don't come up to me afterwards and tell me how I'm being overbearing in the pulpit. There is an issue of goodness here. Last thing about our bodies. We need to call one another to better things. That's convocation. Last thing, our bodies are not only... We sin with our bodies, our suffer in our bodies, they're saved and they're sanctified. Last thing, and I really am almost done. There's something else about our bodies, and I'll close with this, that our bodies will be judged and glorified. It's easy to forget that judgment is coming for you all. You will be judged. It will have nothing to do with your entering heaven. Your, your, your getting into heaven is secure because of Jesus. Your, 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 your free pass to the world to come is secured at the cross and in the resurrection. But judgment is coming for you, and it will be your father's evaluation of your works in the body. Everything you've said, everything you've thought, everything you have done with your bodies. Our father will evaluate our works, the Apostle Paul says. Now listen to the language. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We need to ponder that. Am I using my body for my father's pleasure now and on that last day? Not only the things that I'm doing with my body, the things I am not doing with my body, the things I have left undone with my body, these will be judged by my father who loves me, who gave his son for me, and who cares very deeply about the good and the evil that I do with my body as his child. And they will be glorified, our bodies. Because if our works in the body in this world are going to be judged by our Father, the Bible also tells us our bodies themselves, many of them will be decayed in the ground or wherever they have perished, 
in this life, our bodies will be glorified in that world to come. And I read Romans 8 because we are told that the whole creation is actually groaning for the redemption of our bodies. Groaning for that full manifestation of the children of God when in glorified bodies like Jesus we stand before our Father. And you can make the case, I think, this world that we're living in right now, in the body, it's just a rehearsal. Just a rehearsal for an eternity. How do you even describe eternity? Of using our bodies in that world to come to put on display the glory of God in ways that you just can't even imagine. And so my conclusion today, dear saints, as we continue through this series... You are not your own because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. And make it so, our great Lord and our God. In Jesus we pray. Amen.